Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians and the heritage community to end their winter of discontent. The podcast where myth and misconception is conveniently smothered in the Tower of London. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and good friend, the legend that is Kyle Glover. Although I am thinking of quitting after that intro. Hello everyone. This week, dear listener, we are staying in the medieval period and we're bringing to a close the bloody years of the Wars of the Roses. And to guide us on this journey, we have historian and author of Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, Nathan Amin. Nathan, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to getting angry. Good, good. Blood pressure up already? It's always up these days. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Kyle and I are both avid Wars of the Roses fanatics, and we've served our time at many a Bosworth. And both Kyle and I saw you speak at Chalk Valley a few years ago when you brought out your book on the Beauforts. But for the angry mob out there, can you give us a brief history of you and how you ended up where you are? Yeah, um, well, I'm a historian and author who, um, as you've suggested, concentrates primarily on the Wars of the Roses, in particular with a focus on Henry VII and the Welsh Tudor family. As my accent, as many of you will be able to tell, I am Welsh myself. um, And Henry VII was, of course, famously that first uh, Welsh king of England. So where I grew up, you know, Wales is a country littered with castles and it doesn't take long before you come across mm-hmm. the name of the Tudors. Now, I am somebody who's perhaps more into things like rugby and boxing myself, so I could only prep with so much of the court dr- dramatics around Henry VIII. You go back a generation, <laughs> you suddenly come around swords, battles, uh, bloodshed, and that's yeah. definitely more in keeping with my kind of mentality. So Yeah, Henry the, the interesting Tudors. Absolutely. Henry VII, the Tudors, the Welsh aspect, and, of course, the Wars of the Roses, which were, you know, a conflict fought primarily along the Welsh march. You know, it's, it, all creates a, it all creates a perfect storm for me to get my, get my hands into. 
Okay, so, um, I mean, were you always a historian? Did you study history through education? Or, like myself, were you an enthusiast that then started to really study it and, and take it from there? Yeah, believe it or not, I don't even have a history GCSE. <laughs> Neither do I! <laughs> yes! Lost! Um, but back in my school, I was forced into a choice between history and geography, and I was something of a something of a geography genius in those days. So I was uh, led down that path. Um, so no, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm a late comer to the, to the world of history. And I often put it down to boredom in my twenties. Um, just trying to find something to, to, to pique my interest. I've always had a bit of an obsessive personality on various topics, but Henry the seventh is the one that's, that's really stuck. And, it's easy to say this now in 2022 when Henry VII is everywhere, but back in yeah. 2008, 2009, there'd been two biographies written on him in the previous 100 years. Um, he was just somebody completely overlooked. So you had to do your own work if you wanted to find a bit more out. You know, luckily I've come in at the, at the bottom end of that, and now we're looking at a bit of a, bit of a Henry VII golden age. Yeah, I mean, go go back ten or twenty years, and you know, even even mentioning Henry the Seventh got you hunted down and crucified by the Richard the Third Society. Brave man for coming out with a book on the Beaufort, I can tell you. That's uh, like you say. Well, you know, I, I've played I've played rugby. I've been a, I've been a, a front rower, and anyone knows anything about rugby. If you've been in the front row, you can deal with anything thrown at you, including the Richard the Third Society. <laughs> we love you all, Ricardians out there. I'm, uh, yes. I'm, I'm sure you're quitting after listening to this, but do stay with us. So let, let's get on then to uh, to that thing that's going to drive you up the wall, the thing you've been looking forward to in getting angry. So Nathan, please, with all the gusto and emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our angry mob of history ragers what you wish people would just get over? It's this absolute bloody idea that Henry VII had no claim whatsoever to the English throne. Well, first and foremost, Henry VII, believe it or not, was descended from Edward III. We're often told that Henry VII was a king who had such a weak claim to the English throne. He was just a usurper who stole the right of the great King Richard III, the man with the perfect ironclad claim to the throne. But Henry VII was royally descended. You know, he was directly in line through his Beaufort family from Edward III. They were a family, the Beauforts, who did have a legitimate claim to the throne. Now, okay, we can say that there were other families in 15th century England who had perhaps stronger claims to the throne. But what does that even mean? Throughout English history, it's never been about who's had the strongest claim to the throne. It's about who is able to put might behind that yeah. right. And that's exactly what Henry VII was able to do. He had the might. That might becomes right. Before we get into the rights and wrongs and details of various claims and things like that, as we're chiefly talking about Henry VII, who ends the Wars of the Roses, can you give us a five-minute potted history of the Wars of the Roses for people out there that, that don't know too much about this area? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, Edward III, King of England in the, 40, in the 1300s, he has five sons. Five sons, he makes dukes. This starts a lot of problems a century later because a century later, during the middle of the 1450s, everybody who's anyone 
in England is able to trace their lineage back to Edward III. That's problem number one. A lot of people mm-hmm. with a smattering of royal blood in their veins. Problem number two in the 1450s is England has a king on the throne, Henry VI. He is, uh, you know, he's a decent chap, it seems. Would have been more more in keeping if he had restricted his work to a monastery rather than on a throne. He was something of an inert character who was easily led by other people. This created factional discord throughout England. Ultimately, two factions rise to the fore. One is the House of York, led by Richard of York, a man who claims he has a better claim to the throne, a better lineage than the current king, Henry VI. And then we have the other faction, the Lancastrians, the Mm -hmm. party of Henry VI. They are led principally by a chap called Edmund Beaufort, uh, the Duke of Somerset. Yeah. Long story short, these two factions gradually go to war, first for power to be the man behind the throne, and then eventually the throne itself. The House of York and the House of Lancaster. 30 years of conflict, a dynastic war back and forth, battles raging all across the landscape of England and Wales as they all get knocked off one by one. Do you know you say that? Sorry if I can just look here. Battles raging all across the landscape, except Lancashire. Nobody goes to Lancashire for a fight. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those really ironic things that, Lan- that Lancashire and Yorkshire in particular were hardcore areas that supported the House of Lancaster. And these yeah. days, you try and tell anyone in Yorkshire that they would have historically have been on the Lancastrian side of the divide. It doesn't go down well, I tell you that. I live about five kilometres from Pontefract yeah. Castle, so so I'm, I'm right there. <laughs> and, you know, these wars rage on and off, up and down, for this 30-year period, until gradually the House of York have won. Uh, you know, Edward IV of York has defeated his enemies, He's crushed the seed of his enemies, as one chronicler says, and everything is, you know, it's a Yorkist victory. Alas, Edward IV was a man who liked to celebrate his victories. At the age of 40, he dies overweight, in terrible health, hence why he died, and he leaves behind two, two children. The wars rear their heads again. These are the so-called princes in the tower, the two boys who were locked away by their uncle, Richard III, whose rise to the throne is controversial. Was he a usurper? Was he the rightful king? It all depends on which side of the history you come down. But the fact remains that by taking the throne, Richard opened the door for a man living overseas in France to come over and lay claim to the throne. And that man was Henry VII, Henry Tudor, the man who ultimately would win the Wars of the Roses. It's very Game of Thrones. You know, George R. R. Martin derived much of his work from the Wars of the Roses. It's fascinating. It's back and forth. It's, you know, it's got all the villains you want, all the saviours you want, and it's just a complex bloody mishmash period in our history i mean it's proper drama isn't it i mean you've got you've got all the politics you've got all the intrigue you've got all the backstabbing you've got all all of the battles you can barely tell who's on whose side even even during battles that changes it was just just a crazy period of history that my history teacher at school managed to make boring 
I actually had to, <laughs> had to leave school to uh, to get an interest in the Wars of the Roses. I think the entire wars, you know, it, it's it's some people have regarded it in the modern days the Cousins War, um, and that's true to an extent. But I mean, most of these people were brother-in-laws and son-in-laws of each other. You know, they were facing off against their in-laws at every single battle. Um, there's a famous incident after the Battle of Northampton where two sisters both had husbands fighting on the opposite sides. You know, one one was married to the Duke of Buckingham, one was married to the Earl of Salisbury. Um, the mm. Duke of Buckingham dies and his wife, his widow, is now taken into the custody of her sister who's married to the very man involved in the death of her husband. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating and complex time where loyalties mean yeah. nothing in ter- you know in in favor of personal ambition and if you do want to come back to henry the 7th you know he's sometimes considered uh, a boring accountant king you know a miserly scrooge like figure who's very gray a very boring man who just happened to be there filling the void between rich the 3rd and henry the 8th these two man mountains of history but let's look at henry the 7th if we bring it back to its most basic form He's a person who is chased into exile as a kid, chased through underground tunnels, escaping men who wanted to kill him. 14 years later, he invades England with an army, kills the king, marries the princess, and goes on, <laughs> goes on to, to establish a thriving dynasty where his direct descendant is still on the throne today. I mean, if you want to write a, a Hollywood epic, he's yeah. your man. Yeah, it's almost fairy tale like in its uh, in its structure, isn't it? Absolutely. Although I will say that you know Henry Tudor, he did give us the dynasty that is even more dysfunctional than the Plantagenets. <laughs> uh, what I will say was, unfortunately, he had long gone by the time it all went to pot, so he can't <laughs> yeah. accept the blame for yeah, that. Yeah, it's not really, it's, it's, it's not really his. Fault. It's a, it's a spoilt brat of a son, and I will say this about Henry the Eighth. <laughs> this has all the makings of Henry the Seventh. A self-made man, you know, a man who's pulled himself up and established the kingdom, you know, himself. Got the riches, got the nice house, got the nice car, created a wonderful world for his son to be raised in a world that he didn't have himself, and it all went to pot. And we hear that story day in, day out, down to the modern day. You know, just a spoiled brat who didn't make the best of of the advantages given to him by his hard-working dad. Every family's got one. (laughs) I think I am that in my family. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in this mass of different competing claims and different factions, where does Henry Tudor's claim to the throne come from? And what makes it more solid than certain sections of modern society (laughs) would give credit for? So... Henry VII is descended from Edward III. You know, he is descended from the Beaufort family who were the illegitimate children of John of God, that mighty, rich, wealthy Duke of Lancaster from the uh, late 14th century. Now, the fact that the Beauforts were illegitimate bastards means that, well, clearly Henry VII should have no claim to the throne whatsoever. He, He is descended from, you know, a nest of bastards. But these children were retrospectively legitimised uh, mm-hmm. in their 20s. Their father married their mother, his mistress, Catherine Swinford, one of those famous love matches in fiction history. 
and the Bullfords were retrospectively legitimised. They were declared, uh, you know, by Pope and Parliament as if they were begotten of royal blood. They were legitimate, fully-fledged members of the royal family. So anyone who says that the Bullfords had no claim to the throne because they were bastards, well, they're wrong. We have the historical record that shows that they were legitimised. And as they were legitimised, they were able to attain to every single office, title in the kingdom. Again, the court is in their legitimisation freely and lawfully, as if you were born in lawful matrimony. Now, sure, a couple of generations later, in the middle of the 15th century, there were many with far more impressive lineages than one that had started in bastardy. The House of York being a perfect example. Yeah. The, the House of Stafford with the Dukes of Buckingham, the Nevilles. Many families had impressive lineages. But so did the Beauforts, and so did in time, did Henry Tudor, whose mother was Margaret Beauford. You know, she inherited this pedigree from the Beauforts. So we can argue all day long about who had the better claim uh, and that Henry VII had no blood claim. They are wrong. He had a blood claim. But, of course, it's not the blood that ultimately matters in making a king. Well, certainly not the blood in the veins, maybe the blood on the floor. (laughs) Exactly. You know, uh, it is all about that might on the battlefield. And this is why we can move on to the next step in Henry's rise to the throne, the blood is irrelevant. Henry VII, Henry Tudor, Henry of Richmond, whatever we want to call him, he claimed the throne of England through conquest, not bloodline. So everybody who criticises Henry VII as having no claim whatsoever to the English throne, they are completely ignorant of this single key fact in the Tudor accession. It was conquest, not blood that made Henry Henry Tudor King of England. Given that Henry's claim is approved by exactly the same estates of the realm as Richard III, then that does make his claim, and again, I can feel the hate mail coming in already, as solid as Richard III's, doesn't it? I'm going to argue it makes it greater than Richard III's. And uh, the reason I'll say is this. I thought he might, you know. <laughs> we, we are correct. So first first and foremost, yes. the three estates of the realm, the lords, the commons and the church, they all assent to Henry Tudor's, you know, accession to the English throne. Whenever we hear arguments in favour of Richard III as to why he was not a usurper and why he was the rightful king of England, we are always shouted at by Ricardians, that was because the three estates approved him. And they did. In 1483, the three estates of the realm formally approved Richard's rise to the throne. And that's why I will say Richard was a rightful king of England. However he got there, once he did get there, they approved him. Yeah, It's the same with Henry VII. They all approved him. Um, They declared his title in a bill in Parliament, and it became an act of Parliament, which is standing to this day. And it's really interesting, the lines end that forevermore the Kingdom of England rest, remain and abide in the most royal person of our now sovereign Lord, Harry VII, and in the heirs of his body lawfully coming, 
perpetually with the grace of God, so to endure. And the last words are key, and in none other. So Parliament in 1485 have now gone, Henry VII is the rightful king forevermore and only his heirs. Not not the heirs that he would have with Elizabeth of York, not the heirs of anybody else, only his heirs. And that is something that stands to this very day because our current queen is still directly descended from um, Henry VII. So we have that. At the very minimum there, the three estates which approved Henry VII were the same three estates which approved Richard III and vice versa. They are equal at that point. Now, the reason that I say that, if anything, Henry's claim to the throne is stronger than Richard III's is, again, not to do with that bloodline, not to do with that so-called right, it's to do with that might. In this period, you know, the, the 1480s, the only thing that mattered was God's judgment, and God gave his judgment on the battlefield. So Henry Tudor did have this somewhat admittedly weak bloodline claim to the throne, but he supported this by defeating Richard III in the Battle of Bosworth. A king's right to rule was demonstrated on the field of battle. It was divine sanction. When God was called upon to choose his king at Bosworth Field, he chose, in the eyes of everybody present that day, he chose Henry VII. Now, of course, I'm not myself saying that Henry VII is God's choice as king. You know, we live in a, in, we live in a far less religious age these days. But to the people on the field that day, the most effective claim period was God. And God judged in favour of Henry VII. He was acclaimed on the battlefield after the victory by his supporters, and he was crowned with Richard's crown on the battlefield before he left. You know, it was a fait accompli. At the yeah. end of the 22nd of August, 1485, Henry VII was king of England, and I suppose God had judged him regardless of who had the better hereditary blood claim you know god had made his choice and you know it's with good reason that henry issued his first proclamation later that evening from leicester in which he you know referred to himself as henry by grace of god king of england and of france prince of wales and lord of ireland it was a done deal you know henry mm. was the rightful king Anyone who wants to tweet me or message me that he was a usurper with a rubbish claim and Richard III was, you know, was the, the rightful king and remains the rightful king, you're not doing your history, lads. It's not going to stop my mum from trying, though, but, uh, <laughs> but do get one. Yeah, and uh, I think Charlotte White is already sharpening her swords and her uh, stiletto heels. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, if I can just throw a question in that, then um, obviously Bosworth, a lot of turns on the actions of Margaret Beaufort's family, the Stanleys. In terms of coming to that battle, you know, it's always painted that Henry the Henry the Seventh wasn't the tactician, didn't have much military experience, whereas Richard the Third had led the vanguard at Tewkesbury, he'd led the vanguard at Barnet. You know, is there any truth to that, or is that a whole load of Yorkist propaganda coming forward from there? Um, you know, there's no way anyone can say that Henry matched up to Richard in terms of military skill or talent. You know, Henry had been raised abroad, he hadn't been raised for the last 14 years in a noble environment. He certainly didn't have the hands-on experience or training that Richard had. That's without shadow of a doubt. Mm. And it is one of the things that's always levelled at mm. at me for some reason as the as the uh, public spokesman of Henry VII, it seems that I've become. Uh, that <laughs> Henry was a coward. He was a coward who hid behind some men at Bosworth. Well, hang on a minute. Are we really considering somebody who had been chased as a child abroad, had been threatened with assassination multiple times whilst in exile, who has then raised a pretty shoddy army, has sailed to Wales? I mean, Wales is hard enough to drive around these days. The boy has marched through that country for two weeks, again with an you know, an, an iffy army, he's marched directly to the back of England Leicester to face down the King of England, and you're calling that man a coward? He was going straight to what I would say fairly certain death. Now, he wasn't sure, yeah. you know, okay, we can argue maybe he was sure, maybe he wasn't sure whether the Stanleys were going to switch forces, but battles come down to the smallest of things. That's still hedging a very big bet you're going to make it through that day. I don't think anyone really believed on the morning of Bosworth, Henry Tudor was coming away from that field alive. And we consider that man a coward? Come on. You know, that's someone who's completely fronted yeah. up to, to fate and destiny and, and, and whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and to be fair, if you're going to turn up to a battle and you don't have a lot of military experience compared to your opponent, then identifying four or five generals and dukes in your own army and, and saying, you lot are really good at this. Do you want to like shoulder most of that decision-making? It's just bloody good sense. It's absurd to me that people still cheer on Richard's tactics that day. It's like <laughs> it's like cheering in a rugby game when you've lost 30-0. Oh, we got the tactics right, though, didn't we? You know, we finally set out our, set out our scrum well. Well, you've still lost... So what, what difference does it make? You know, surely the end result is ultimately what matters there. You know, the history books, as they famously say in football and rugby and sport, they're not going to remember how you got the victory. They're only going to remember the titles and the medals and the, and the you know, the, the bus tour. And I tell you what, Henry VII had one hell of a bus tour after he won that battle. It took him weeks to get to London. He marched through all the towns 
wearing the crown that one chronicler said he had so graciously worn, and all tables were laden with wine and food. You know, he went on a right parade, and that's all that ultimately matters in the record books, not whether he could swing a sword or not. Right. That's us told. (laughs) I'm loving this. I could do this all night. So whilst we're on this concept of battle and blood and swinging swords at each other, doesn't this sort of render the right of, uh, by bloodline, sort of irrelevant? Do you think Henry Henry VII comes by the throne the same way Edward IV does? Henry IV, even as far back as William the Conqueror, all take the country by the sword, and no one's doubting their claim to the throne. I think the I think the bloodline, you know, you obviously need to have some sort of connection oh, yes. in theory to, yeah. to, to the previous kings. That helps in getting, but it doesn't mean anything after that. At the end of the day, you have to have yeah. that to grab that throne. Uh, Welsh history is far more, a far better indicator of this. The Welsh princes, I mean, it's the reason why you could argue that our royal family, our royal houses in Wales ultimately collapsed. It was truly dog-eat-dog. There was no primogenitor. There was no passing the crown down. You die, the sons are going to fight it out, and it's the last man who survives. And that's, that was the way for much of Welsh history. It could have been that way in England. Luckily for for the, the commons of England, generally speaking, passing it on to a son did the job. But yeah, you know, William the Conqueror, it's in the name. He conquered the country. Henry the Fourth was not next in line when he usurped the throne in 1399. Um, Edward IV, in 1461, you know, he he used his claim that uh, he was king now because Parliament the year before had decided to change the the crown from the Lancastrians to the uh, Yorkists in future. He now went, you know what, I'm not waiting for that to happen. I'm taking it now. That was sheer conquest. You know, Edward the Fourth went after his enemies like a like a madcap eighteen year old, absolutely on one in fourteen sixty one, mm. and he seized it by by might. If we move further than the Tudors, I'm going outside my my knowledge, but the House of Hanover were they not handed the the crown, the crowns of England and Scotland, based on the simple premise that they were Protestant and they jumped over. What thirty yeah. odd Catholics? You know that yeah. was might. Now that was religious might. It wasn't quite the same as yeah. um, you know military might. But how come no one's questioned the current Queen's right to rule based on that? We're not because her ancestors had the might, and she's been able to use, and her ancestors have been able to use their form of soft power to retain that throne. But the bottom line is, when it comes down to it. Parliament tomorrow, and knowing, knowing, knowing our current um, parliaments in recent times, they may very well do this, you know. They could make me king if they wanted to. I just need, I'd just stand up for that. I just need to have the might to coerce them into uh, approving my assent. There's nothing to stop Parliament from doing that. So this comes all the way back to that three estates question. How can Ricardians and anybody else condemn and um, oppose Henry VII's claim to be king when Parliament said he was. And that is the bottom line. Parliament can make a king, Parliament can unbreak a king. And that has been the case for much of our bloody history. So 
the whole idea of primogenitor then is it is broadly pointless and irrelevant. I wouldn't say it's completely broad, uh, irrelevant because you, you know it does set out a good clear way forward. You know, a good yeah. clear civilized way of passing crowns on. But that 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 king that it gets passed on, he better be up to the job. You know, Henry the Sixth in the during the Wars of the Roses, he didn't lose the crown because of his bloodline. He, you know, he didn't lose the crown because of who his father was. He didn't lose the crown for any other reason than he was just completely useless at it. And it opened the door for somebody else with might to come through and take it. Mm. You know, uh, Richard III, he took that crown by might, in my opinion. Uh, Ricardo would say he took it by right. I believe he took it by might. But he didn't hold on to it, did he? He didn't have the might to keep hold of that crown. Uh, whereas mm. Henry VII did. Henry VII faced down multiple um, rebellions and plots, and he retained that title all the way to the end of his days. Uh, military might to begin with, financial might by the end. So I wouldn't say it was completely irrelevant, uh, bloodline, primogenitor, and so on, but you damn best better be up to the job, or somebody will come along and wrest that from you. Yeah, and it's not like Henry VII doesn't have his people who try, because you... You know, your latest books, the, the Tudor Pretenders, so your Lambert Simnels and your Perkin Warbecks. Is there anything is there anything in these rebellions? Is there anything in these people that comes even close to being a threat to Henry the Seventh? The thing with the first rebellion, there are two very different rebellions. These are the, the Lambert Simnel Rebellion and the Perkin Warbeck Rebellion. You know, we'd have to do another five hour podcast going whether they were truly uh, real princes or pretenders, but for argument's sake, just on the threat, Lambert Simnel Rebellion took Henry to battle. You know, uh, they invaded. It was a carbon copy of what Henry himself had done just two years earlier. They invaded England with a, a ragtag mercenary army and they took him to the battlefield. Henry did what Richard failed to do. He defended his crown in battle he was able to hold on to most of the nobility. He was faced with no defections, and he won that battle, the last battle of the Wars of the Roses, um, if we want. But yeah. as Boswell has shown, inclement weather, a, a timely defection, anything can change the days on the battlefield, which, again, is an argument against anyone who steps foot on a medieval battlefield. You cannot ever criticise their you know, their strength, their valour, their courage, you know, because those days swing on the minutest of of details. So, yes, hen- the, 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 the rebellion itself, the conspiracy, the plot was pretty weak, but mm-hmm. they took him to that battlefield and that could have changed. The Perkin Warbeck rebellion that followed four years later is a different animal. He never, he invaded England three times and they were all farcical. Uh, most of them didn't even last an hour or two. Uh, he never took Henry VII to battle, but he was just there rattling along around the borders for eight years. You know, it, it took a lot of a lot of mental um, stress mm. and anxiety, wondering what he was up to. Uh, it took a lot of a lot of panic, wondering if somebody was going to defect from within your household. Ultimately. It didn't trouble Henry whatsoever, but he didn't know that. He didn't have the hindsight that he would eventually overcome Perkin Warbeck with 
relative ease in the end. Yeah. You know, Warbeck never really truly threatened Henry, but he didn't know every morning, you know, walking through his chambers, whether somebody was going to be there with a, you know, with a knife to the back. And that is not a healthy way to live. And we always talk about, you know, Henry being a suspicious and paranoid king. The boy was chased since he was four years old by plots, assassins, you know, Yorkists in dark corners. Then he becomes king and they're still there. You know, this is a man who had a who had an anxious time of it. So as we've hinted a little bit before when we mentioned the idea of primogeniture and the, you know, the this right to the throne. I'm getting the impression then that they that right to the throne it continues because it's going to make a monarch's life easier to have that framework in place. If you look at Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fourth usurps the throne and spends his entire reign terrified that somebody with a better claim than him, or somebody with more might than him, somebody that can hold on, is going to take him out of the picture, and and, and so forth. You know, so it, is it in the monarch's interest really to keep this idea going? Absolutely, and you know we could pin a lot of the a lot of the blame of the Wars of the Roses on Henry the Fourth and his usurpation of Richard the Second. You know he's the one who's shown I have a really good claim to this throne. Okay, there's other people, uh, the Mortimers, who have quote unquote a better claim, but so what? I've got an army. I'm coming in and I'm taking it. You've opened Pandora's box there. You know, yeah. uh, luckily, his son, Henry V, was a man who garnered much respect um, and influence amongst the English nobles and was able to steady the ship. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to come in as the son of an usurper king, invade France. It's the way to get medieval England behind you. Absolutely. And it worked. And his son was a, his son again, Henry VI. You know, he lived off a lot of the goodwill from his father for 30 years. You know, 30 to 40 years regardless of how useless he was as king, there was still that that loyalty, you know, that 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 influence of of the great Lancastrian heritage that was still holding it all together until it reached a point where he was so bloody useless <laughs> that the House of York finally reawakened that dormant claim that they had. But you know, if Henry VI had been a decent king who wasn't want to favouritism amongst his nobles, the Lancastrians could still be on the throne today. You know, it's it, the framework is key to keeping things together. But if there's any any chinks within that framework, within that you know, within, within that um, that idea, that structure, it's all going to come crashing down. And modern, you know, there's a lot of modern discussion around today. What is it going to look like, the modern royal family, when Prince Charles takes over as king? You know, very few people living today have, have operated in a world where, you know, the current queen has not been on the throne. We don't actually know mm. what's going to happen. It's quite an interesting, quite interesting few years that's going to be ahead of us. You know, is he going to yeah. be able to keep keep the structure, the framework together? Or is there going to be a rise in, in republicanism? Is there going to be r- repeated calls for Prince William to take over? You know, I'm fairly sure we're not going to descend into some sort of crazy civil war where, I don't know, another Richard Duke of Gloucester who's currently alive decides to come in and, and usurp Prince Charles. 
But, you know, the monarchy, I think, are facing quite tough times ahead. And they're going to try their damnedest to try and retain some of that structure that's in place now. But again, there's a lot of external factors these days that they have to they have to deal with. It was no different back then. You know, the 1450s, for example, there was a lot of heavy taxation, financial burdens with France. People weren't mm-hmm. happy. There was a lot of rebellions, a lot of pressure exerted on the House of Lancaster that brought it crumbling from within. But that framework did work for the best part of 50 years. Cool. Okay, right. I know this is a pet rage of Kyle's that he's wanted to get off his chest for for quite some time. So, so lastly, as we're on, on the Richard Henry debate, the princes in the tower. Just who cares? <laughs> I, I actually agree with you. Who does care? The past is the past, and it's already occurred. No amount of debate exactly. or arguing or you know discussion around it is going to change what has happened. Now, I do say that, despite yes. the fact that Princess exactly. in the Tower does make up about ninety-five percent of my current work as a historian, so I shouldn't really you know shoot the the, yes. the horse in the mouth, so to speak. But it it, yeah. it doesn't matter, and, and I'll tell you for why. In 1483, regardless of if Richard III killed the princes or not, I happen to believe he did, because why wouldn't he? You know, he, he wasn't a fool. What's he going to do? Leave leave two boys living who could be, you know, the source of, of rival claims that would bring his family down from within? It's absurd to think that Richard III didn't have a hand in the princes in the Tower's death. But be that as it may... The only thing that matters in 1483 is that enough people believe Richard III did it to open the door for Henry Tudor to sneak in with that might that we've been talking about all along. Richard III could have been the rightest king in the world, but enough people believed that he killed those boys, and that is what paved the way for a Tudor storm to come in and unseat him. Whether he killed them or not, is actually ultimately irrelevant. And whether we do ever find out who did it, it's not going to change the fact um, that it is Henry's direct descendant who's still on the throne today and not Richard's. Now, we have previous guest, Charlotte White, uh, a solid Ricardian, did say to us that uh, if there was a, a, a shred of actual evidence that the princes, in fact, actually died uh, at the time, she would eat a hat. And she has... A lot of hats. Is there any evidence that these guys actually died of anything other than natural causes? I get you. Richard should have killed them. Henry should have killed them. Possibly the Duke of Buckingham had killed them beforehand. We don't know. But is there anything actually that says they died? I think Charlotte's hats are safe. For the time being. <laughs> um, unfortunately not. You know, it's all supposition. It's all rumour. It's mm. all gossip. And I fear that is always going to be the case. So her hats don't need yeah. to worry for the time being. Right, then I will put away my collection of condiments. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, because that has been a refreshing take, uh, I have to say, against the more dominant Yorkist themes that have a tendency to come out of this period time and time again. So thank you very much for 
for just bringing the rage of the roses to history rage. Thank you very much. I feel a lot better for that now. Well, if you'd like to know more about Nathan's work, then you can start by buying the excellent books that he's published so far, House of Beaufort and Henry VII from the Tudor Pretenders. And we're going to have links to those in the History Rage bookshop. And you can follow him on Twitter at Nathan Amen, uh, where you can where, where you've been invited to tweet him with a whole load of your your own theories. So, but yeah, once again, Nathan, thank you for coming on the show because that was a brilliant way to end series four. Thank you very much. That was fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can subscribe to us on Patreon, which really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. Now we're going to take a short break now as we've reached the end of Series 4, but we'll be back in a fortnight kicking off with Roger Morehouse on the World War II Polish Army. And we do hope you'll join us at that point. But until then, keep the Rage Cauldron bubbling over and we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.